0: hello and welcome to let's get psyched a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective as well as the implications for clinical practice i'm your host psychologist dr aaron parks of the university of california riverside's counseling and psychological services and i'm joined by my co-host second year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow dr tosha yamaguchi hi tosha hi dr parks fourth year psychiatry resident at ucr dr dm Wen. hi dm hi dr parks Third-year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Joshua Poole. Hi, Joshua. How are you doing, Dr. Parks? And second-year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, Dr. Parks. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on today's show, we have a full house. We have a lot of folks here, which is great. We have a good, lively, to active discussion. On today's show, we have joining with us, Our guest host, oh, she's hosted before. She's been on the show before, so she's an old hand at this. But uh, she's a third-year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Saloni Singh. Hi, Saloni. She recently presented at UCR on drug interactions of cannabis. uh, And she has a special interest in uh, psychiatry with addiction. So... Good because we are going to talk about cannabis. We haven't talked about we we've been planning this sh- show or thinking about this show and how are we going to go about it? Because it's, it's a yeah. big chunk. It's it's a lot to talk about, but I'm we've been glad, wanting to do
1: this for a year a or more. Time.
0: Why? Because it's controversial. Because uh, it's changing our society in a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, I just I just read that uh, basically use has doubled. You know, since we started uh, legalizing, more states legalized it uh and and even uh mushrooms like psilocybin one state legalized that um i i kind of you know before before we get into this uh, you know uh does anyone want to share you know one of their uh, 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 uh one of the most important things that they want to share as far as uh to get out to identify what issue do you feel like we should address uh at, you know, and talk to doc, uh, Dr. Singh about this, Dr. De Saloni about this. Is there something that's super important that you need to to start out with? i since there's, I'm just then I will start the questioning. that I guess, I guess not. I, that confused everybody. Like, why why would I say is there anything important that you want to kind of make sure that you get? It that confused everybody. So I'm just going to start. There's something really important that I think is important. Yeah, I feel like there's something really important that I feel like. Uh, uh, what, as far as the addiction potential of, of cannabis, like what do you, we all, we often hear that cannabis is not addictive, uh, ca- cannabis, uh, it, 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 I think, I think doctors will look at uh, cannabis as saying it is addictive. Is there any research, Saloni, do you know of any research that can definitively say that cannabis is addictive or not addictive?
2: Um, you know, I don't know explicitly of research, like targeting that, but based on what I read uh, before this talk, it does seem like there are some structural differences in brains of people that are chronic users and dependent on cannabis, as in like they subjectively identify themselves as dependent or objectively um, determined as dependent by their physician versus like chronic users that are don't meet criteria for dependence or cannabis use disorder in the DSM. And they have shown that there are structural differences in their brains, which would suggest that there is a physiological component to the dependence. Um, but that said, you know, as with any psychoactive substance, especially one that gives you any kind of high, you can always be psychologically addicted to it, but you know the question is, can you develop a physical dependence such as you know a physical dependence on alcohol or nicotine, something like that?
0: Where would you personally rank it with, compared with the major drugs?
2: I would say the risk of physical dependence is pretty low. Um, but you know it, it's it's really complicated with the how we define addiction and use disorders in general. I think it's so sub, you know subjective to our culture. And the implications but i would say that it's definitely less physically um you know addicting than alcohol or nicotine which would be you know the other two substances that are commonly used in the us so i would say yeah less so than either of those two
0: do you feel like it, it is medicine
2: um how
0: do you think about this drug
2: I don't know. I mean, there are, so there are FDA like approvals for different things that it can treat, but they're not, none of them are mental illnesses. They are, you know, nausea, vomiting, or uh, various epileptic disorders, especially in children. So there are some indications, FDA indications, which I would say, yeah, it's a medicine in those cases, or medication in those cases. But in terms of medication for mental illness, I would, yeah, I would be very reluctant to say that.
1: I do have so many patients coming into my office or at the hospital who say that they're using cannabis for either their sleep or anxiety. Do you guys have that? Yeah. And I was just, yeah. I was also just going to mention, that's interesting that you said that Tosha as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, Mm -hmm. because uh, recreational marijuana has been legalized and, a lot of states, and I think in the recent November election, it um, it was legalized in. Um, I have to look this up, but I, I remember New Jersey, South Dakota, Montana, Arizona, and it was allowed wow. recula- recreationally um, for the starting at the age of fifteen. So, if we're also talking about how the brain develops, Saloni, um, what do you think of that?
2: Um. I mean, yeah, there's there's uh so the, the the I think the age of first use is very, very important with any substance, but especially with cannabis because we know about the cognitive effects that it has in in a developing brain, you know, even if we don't even talk about the risk of psychosis, developing psychosis, but just general cognitive maldevelopment or misdevelopment because of early chronic cannabis use. So yeah. Sorry, I don't know if that answered your do, question. Well, do you now? feel
0: like the legalization has led to more young people using, and therefore we're going to have these problems with young people starting earlier, using it more, and so they're now they're more likely to uh, develop psychotic disorders because that's one of the one of, some research points to that.
2: Yeah, you, I don't know. I mean. It, it, sort of makes sense that if you legalize a substance, it's going to be more used even uh, by minors or in an illegal way, just because it's going to be more ubiquitous. So it's going to be easier for people to get their hands on it, whether that's sold to them by an adult or not, whether they just, you know, found it. But uh, it is very scary to me. I mean, I'm not against the legalization of cannabis at all, but... The implications for children and the pediatric population scare me a lot, and I really wish that the education around cannabis was completely different in schools.
3: Saloni, can I can I take that up with you? Um, why are you not against legalization at all? And I ask that as opposed to why are you not against legalization versus not being against decriminalization?
2: So I'm not against legalization of it because, well, first of all, it, it sort of seems inevitable at this point. I think, uh, like Dr. Wen mentioned earlier, you know, with the election in, uh, earlier this month, a lot of states have now legalized it. Uh, in terms of legalization versus decriminalization, I just think that with legalizing any substance, which we've seen in a lot of uh, countries all over the world, we get better control of the product. And the kind of product that people are getting, um, you know, as ideally higher quality, less likely to be tainted with other substances, uh, we're more likely to, or we can provide education. We could do that. We could make it so that dispensaries are mandated to provide education, just like how you have, you know, the surgeon general's warning on a pack of cigarettes. We need to have similar warnings on these products, but we can only do that if it's legalized and we're selling it through some kind of, you know, regulatory agency.
3: Do you, I
0: apologize for my dog, though, by the way, he feels very strongly about cannabis, and he's been making it known.
3: Go ahead, continue, Alan. Thank you, dr. Parks. Um, so so, and and if your dog disagrees with me on this, you don't have to speak for him. He can take it up with me, you know, directly.
0: You're that good. You're multilingual,
3: basically. I don't I don't appreciate his <laughs> passive aggression there so so I. I guess my own maybe not entirely educated opinion on this is it seems like if if the assumption is that legalization goes with increased usage, that I would favor decriminalization over legalization for harm reduction. The last time I checked in with ACAP, which is uh, the sort of authoritative body for child and adolescent psychiatry, they were opposing legalization what is your thought? Do you see a value in the legalization or why, why legalization? And I know you said you see it as inevitable, but I mean, that doesn't mean you support it. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I definitely hear you about it increasing the prevalence of use, especially among the pediatric population. Um, but I guess my counterpoint or what I would, if I'm playing devil's advocate, I would ask, you know, what about alcohol, right? Alcohol is legalized. Um, I mean, it's probably, I mean, if we go back to like after prohibition, I'm sure that once alcohol was legalized, the use of alcohol went way, way up, but we are not de, you know, we're not going to de-legalize alcohol now. And alcohol is very, very destructive, including to the pediatric population. So I think that, the reason I'm not against it, and I would say I would support legalization of marijuana is that it's, if we're comparing it to other substances that are legal, you know, it's just way less destructive overall. So I don't see why we wouldn't do it, given the benefits that we get from legalizing it, such as, um, like I said, regulating the product, and then also providing um, you know, resources or education to the users because we can do it in a much more systematic way.
0: So it sounds like your position is uh, the legalization is good because we can kind of manage it better. We can regulate it better, um, you know, educational campaigns and things like that. But also it could be a harm reduction thing where people can switch to cannabis, which is, uh, you know, honestly, I don't know of any research that shows you can overdose from cannabis. I, but you may be aware But Whereas alcohol, you, of course, you can. Other drugs, you can. So is that is that basically your position?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, multiple studies have shown that alcohol is the most destructive substance of abuse in our society and probably in societies all over the world by far, you know, and it's it's, when you look at the comparison. I mean, of course, part of that is because of how prevalent it it is. But but if you look at the comparison, it's, you know, by far the most destructive. So yeah, I do think if we're talking about a harm reduction approach, uh, I'd have to see I'd have to see the research. Uh, I mean, I don't know specifically of the research, but anecdotally with my patients, so many of them tell me that they have gone to weed because they were alcoholics for like decades. And then they discovered weed and it solved so many problems in their life. They're so much more fulfilled now than they were when they were you know, abusing alcohol. Mm. They're more socially connected now. They're doing better now in a lot of other ways. Um, than they were before. But that's, like I said, that's all anecdotal. And then when it comes to, like you said, the toxicity and the overdosing, no, it takes a lot of cannabis to truly overdose. I mean, I think when I did my, uh, my presentation on the interactions, uh, it's basically like it has a very, very um, wide therapeutic index, basically. So that means that, you know, that it takes, a, I mean, it takes really, really inordinate amounts to be in any way. um, And, uh, you know, in any way poisoned, I guess, by cannabis or however you want to call that.
3: So, Saloni, that, that your points are well taken, by the way, and and as are those of um, Dr. Parks, and it seems like you guys are kind of connecting the dots for me and that maybe the difference it is what you're getting at that maybe the difference between uh, legalization and decriminalization for harm reduction is that you can provide the education with the legalization because you have a, a known point of sale. Is that kind of... Why you can provide the education with one and not the other?
2: I th- yeah I think so. Um, I'd have to see exactly how it works. You know I think it depends on the state when it's just decriminalized and not legalized. It really depends on the state whether or not dispensaries are there. Uh, I don't know. I don't think you have like dispensaries in places where it's just decriminalized. But I'd have to look at that. But definitely you have more dispensaries in place that are de- that are legalizing the drug. And yeah, the point of sale is known. And I think with, um, I mean, I'm a very harm re- pro-harm reduction person. Not all people who are interested in addiction medicine are like that, actually, which was surprising to me when I when I discovered that.
1: Can you speak a little bit about that, Saloni, for our listeners? Like, what is harm reduction and the philosophy behind it?
2: Yeah, so, the, so a harm reduction philosophy is basically one that when you, you know, we're talking about substance use and uh, substance abuse and addiction and dependence, Do we simply tell people to stop doing all drugs or any kind of psychoactive substance that, you know, um, that we think could have any possible deleterious effects, which all of them can Um, do we just tell them blanket, do we just give them this blanket? No. In every single way. And of course, as as physicians, we always have to do that. But I mean, I'm talking about just society, you know, do we just do blanket legislation against all these drugs and just say, nope, they're, they're illegalized, or, you know, you're going to be, you're going to have basically legal consequences if you're found with this. Um, You know, is that a better approach? That's the non-harm reduction approach. That would be more of a, a strict approach. Versus a harm reduction approach would be, let's decriminalize these drugs at the very least, before we even talk about legalization, so that people can, we can, again, like what Dr. Atkins was saying, Alan was saying, we can have more um, known points of sale where we can provide the education. And the biggest thing is just interfacing with other people when you're an addict it's huge um, it, social connectivity or social connection is a huge huge part of the treatment for addiction um, they've shown a lot of there there have been multiple studies showing that the more socially connected an individual is in their community or society or family, the less likely they are to abuse substances so what this does is basically it brings people out of hiding it brings addicts out of hiding if we decriminalize Or legalize it and it has them interfacing with people who can actually help them more so one big example of harm reduction that's very controversial is needle exchange programs so people who use inject you know who inject various drugs obviously there's there's a lot of harm that can come from that one of the biggest things is infection so infection, with especially things like HIV, which would be terrible to contract. Uh, and this happens a lot because a lot of, you know, especially heroin users are reusing needles, re- swapping needles with other people. You're not exactly like going to buy these things. It's not easy to just buy a bunch of um, syringes. That's very regulated. You can't just go to a medical supply store and do that. So what you're having is people are, are using them um, sharing them and then spreading infection. So this idea of the needle exchange program in a lot of countries, especially in Europe, is that we should have these clinics or you know, semi-clinic type settings where we provide people who are IV drug users with clean needles. And it's not just the needles that you're providing them. Of course, doing that in itself is reducing a lot of harm because you're reducing the incidence of infection but you're also bringing them out of hiding, destigmatizing the illness, making them feel more like they're part of society and you know, we're not just going to basically lock them up somewhere because they're yeah. an addict. Because yeah, doing that is only gonna spur them to, or it's, it's only gonna keep them an addict longer. All right. thank you for that.
0: And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking about cannabis uh, with Dr. Saloni Singh as well as the, the group. Uh, you know, at Saloni, uh, this kind of brings up this idea of how society views cannabis and just addiction and use of substances. W- what explains this country's uh, has, uh, attitude toward uh, cannabis? It seems like we attribute cannabis to a fundamentally worse. Uh, lifestyle or uh, type of person who will use cannabis compared to alcohol even though like you've said alcohol probably is more destructive to you health wise society wise things like that what's going on I, i
1: don't think that there is really a consensus on what this country's opinion is on cannabis i have patients coming in um so i'm seeing children you know and i have teenagers coming in who are using cannabis and their parents know about it and uh they're permissive about it um so i i you don't think
0: there's any stigma again for cannabis compared to alcohol you feel like no i think there is i just don't
1: i just don't think that there's um that our country agrees on one stance on cannabis
3: i think there's a lot of people
1: out there who are pro and against cannabis use
3: I appreciate Dr. Parks's point here and I'll I'll self-disclose a little bit in saying that I I don't drink. And so for me, I can say this about the stigma, right? I am one, it's sort of marginally risky for me to mention in public that I don't drink, which is like, to me, that speaks to not just, it's a negative stigma, right? It's a stigma on, on, it's like, there's questions that come if you don't drink immediately. And, and, I think I have the fairly logical viewpoint, which you, you would think from a harm, if we're talking about true harm reduction from a harm reduction standpoint, is a logical viewpoint that I'd rather see. I mean, I, I'm, I'd probably rather see uh, both of these be illegal. I think I'm a little more pro decriminalization, but I would like to see if alcohol could gradually be made much more prohibited than it is currently. And that's like a totally unaccepted Thing, Whereas cannabis um, has a, a, yeah, very different um, view in society. I think some of it, there's all kinds of of ideas of how cannabis was made criminal. um, And I think some of those are not true. Some of the stories about like William Randolph Hearst, um, although he was, I think, a bad guy in many other ways are are not true. But the ideas of it kind of being coupled with... um, you know racist um like interracial rape fear propaganda and being and and the the word marijuana starting to be adopted because it sounded more spanish sounding and was associated with um migrant workers and and immigration there i think that's pretty well documented um I, if i may just sneak in one more thing here i wanted to ask Saloni about um the harm reduction thing like the needle exchange is really attractive, right? Because when you talk about a needle exchange, like we can all get behind that, because you're not increasing the availability of substance by providing needles. When you talk about harm reduction with legalization, for me at least, and I admittedly don't know a lot here, but when I think about the the scales of the cannabis harm reduction, on one hand, I'm thinking about, um, you know, increased numbers of people using this substance, like. I think really wildly increased numbers of people using it, but I don't know if that's true. And then when I think of the harm reduction, I think a lot of the harm is like MS-13 making $80 billion, I think a few years ago, or like having like a similar um, yearly income to that of Microsoft. And I think of, you know, the violence in other countries. And I think of the potential, like what you mentioned, it could be spiked. Are there other things that I'm not thinking about here in terms of the value of the harm reduction
4: if I <clears throat> sorry if I could jump in actually on that Joshua. Point, Alan um, this is I think you bring up a, a valid a critique here which is in the harm reduction models particularly legalization there is probably an aggregate increase in the amount of substance consumed in the society however I would say that you, the other side of that scale you could toss on okay that is something that will occur, but is the corollary valuable? That is to say, okay, but if we leave it criminalized, how much more destruction do we do to the lives of, you know, marginalized communities? I mean, I've talked about the war on drugs here, I think before we've, we've kind of encountered that problem. um, That, you know, the war on drugs was one totally ineffective in that drugs, one, like that's that's kind of where we're at. And then two, you know, it's been pretty well documented that a lot of the motivations behind the war on drugs had to do with targeting marginalized communities. The biggest ones, you know, that we've probably touched on here like psychedelics and cannabis, both having uh, be, both are attributed to groups of people, marginalized communities or people of color and hippies who were politically very unpopular um, during the administrations that sort of put the war on drugs on place. But as a result of that, we've seen a lot of people from marginalized communities or people of people of color suffer severe disproportionate legal ramifications because these things were illegal. And I think the ultimate question is at what point in our society do we decide that you are not bad for what you put in your body. You are bad for how you treat others. If you even want to say people are bad, like maybe people have bad actions, maybe. But like, this is very much a moral argument in which we're saying, when you you put this in your body, you are bad. And there's even like a virginity component to it where it's like, you know, meth, not even once. Or, you know, there's a lot of these substances have sort of this binary all or nothing. Like if you've done drugs once, you are now somebody who... You know does drugs or has tried drugs and there's a stigma attached to that but it's like why are we so fixated on what people put in their body to the point that we criminalize it and destroy lives that way so i don't know i think i may have rambled a little bit there
3: that's an excellent point joshua yeah, yeah. good point joshua
0: yeah i feel like it's definitely a kind of idea of uh, you know that the cost to other people the cost to your body also you know i mean cannabis is on, on the safer side um, but also just the moralizing that we do how how much does that create actually i've actually I've, you know thought about this i wonder what y'all think you know all this strict prohibition and, and high amount of moralizing that we do about addiction does that lead to <laughs> more addiction than, than whereas the other countries where they have a, a more relaxed idea of about uh, you know they have lower comparably lower rates of addiction. What are your thoughts on that, everybody? Oh,
4: I, I totally agree that this, I mean, so much of the addiction cycle is negative cognitions, is negative feelings about yourself. If you continue to marginalize and isolate because there is a moral component, like if addiction remains a moral issue and not a public health issue, like what we've done with mental health, now depression is not a moral issue. Now depression is a mental health issue. And now people are coming out, they're receiving treatment, and they can get better. But it keeps you in the dark if you maintain that this is a moral issue. So I very much agree
0: with you, Dr. Park.
1: And people will be defensive about it, too, when you address it in clinic.
0: Tosha, say more, Tosha.
1: Well, when you talk about cannabis use or any sort of substance use, um, it's. Uh, I try to. I try to interview patients about substances in the most like clinical way because I feel in the room um, attention like as soon as I broach this topic it's like um a fear of being judged or you know um anticipation that I'm going to be telling them x y and z um and so they may say I mean I hear a lot like I said before I'm using it because I can't sleep otherwise or I'm using it because I'm anxious when actually, you know, there's a lot of studies showing that anxiety is a symptom of cannabis withdrawal um, and that 20 to 30% of cannabis users actually have acute anxiety um, and that's, you know, dose dependent. Or for sleep, sorry, for sleep too, um, heavy use can disrupt sleep and insomnia, like anxiety, is a symptom of cannabis withdrawal.
0: Saloni, do you have some comments for this, the moral discussion and maybe some of the research? Findings?
2: Yeah, um, yeah, I really liked, uh, you know, Joshua, I really liked what you talked about you know, especially when you talked about the moralizing and how it's creating more addiction, or at the very least, it's not stemming addiction, which is, I think, um, you know, part of what I was saying earlier is when you bring addicts out of hiding and you have them interface more with other human beings, aside from the social connectedness, you also have more of an opportunity for them to seek rehabilitation. And they're not going to seek rehabilitation if they've been written off by society completely as a no good addict. Uh, there's no incentive to do that they've already been written off and that's just the, my perception um, of course there's not a scientific way to prove that but that's just what I that's the perception I, I get um, and I, I think I agree with you that said uh, speaking to Alan's point decriminalization would also achieve that right so decriminalization and not legalization would also achieve destigmatizing now why legalization over decriminalization I've been thinking about this um, uh, basically because there's funding involved, right? So you can tax these things. You can, We do tax these things. In, in California, the taxes, that is why cannabis is so expensive now that it's legalized. The taxes are going directly to rehabilitation and drug use or drug abuse recovery programs, which is very important. So I think that's a revenue source, which is great, and also a deterrent, right? If we make it expensive, it's a deterrent, just like how we have... Uh, high taxes on cigarettes, same thing. Um, but in terms of um, what what uh, Tosha was saying as well about people getting defensive, and I think this is why I'm reluctant to say that cannabis is medicine, and I don't agree with my patients when they say it, because the way that people defend cannabis is so different from than the way people defend alcohol, right? So, people don't feel they need to show any kind of medical indication for why they drink alcohol. They just say they like alcohol or it's not a problem for them or, you know, helps them relax at the end of the day. They don't ever say, no, it's my medicine. I've never, I've almost never heard anyone say that about alcohol. And I think that's because of this perception that we have that alcohol is very socially accepted and everyone, you know, drinks every now and then or most people drink. Some people don't. And um, I think Alan, I'm actually really curious, this is kind of an aside, but when you mentioned that there's a stigma when you tell people you don't drink, I wonder how much of that stigma comes from the fact that they assume you're an alcoholic Everyone assumes
3: don't drink. that I was an alcoholic, yes. Everyone. Right,
2: so it's really stigma still about alcohol use, not the lack of alcohol use, wow. but indirectly.
3: That's, like, a, that's a fair point. That's never or all your family, of
2: right? Or a family history of alcoholism. Wow. Right? Right. Which is also a, a big thing. I think there's a stigma there. Oh, you must have a family of alcoholics. That's why you don't drink.
0: And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Uh, spirited discussion, some disagreement. It was just great. We talked about cannabis use, uh, the, the morality behind it. We might want to revisit this topic, actually. Thank you to our co hosts Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi, DM Wynn, Joshua Poole, Alan Atkins, and our special guest host, Dr. Saloni Singh. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucrgmail.com. That's getpsychedonkucrgmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. This episode was recorded in each of our respective homes and then mixed by our producer at KUCR, Elliot Fong. So special thanks go out to him. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.